my wife just whispered she would like that song sung at her funeral. So I'm having a kind of conflict of emotions. I'll try to bury that somewhere deep down. I'm experienced at doing that. Someone remind me if it ever comes up again. We are um, continuing our march through the Gospel of John. Um, and by the way, I mean, I know for many of you hearing that for the first time, it may have been slow, that song, and take your worship guide home and meditate. That's like meat. That was a really good uh, hymn. So I hope you would find joy in it as we have. But um, we'll look at John 4 this morning. We're going to round out the first four chapters, um, and we're coming to Cana in Galilee. We're coming to the second sign there. Jesus does the first sign was turning the water into wine. And I'm just going to, in about one minute, walk us through where we've been. God, uh, John tells us that in the beginning, Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, and he made all things, right? All things were created by him. He shines into the darkness. His people reject him. And our assurance of pardon came from chapter 1 that if you, believe in God, if you believe in Jesus, you have the right to be called the son or daughter of God. So there's this concept of sonship right from the beginning. John the Baptist comes on this scene and he sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes away to take away the sin of the world. And then we go to Cana where there's a wedding and it's the first sign and that's where Jesus turns the water into wine, signifying that we are the bride of Christ, that he is the groom, that the true wedding is coming. We're longing for the true sign. Uh, he has a conversation with Nicodemus, who thought he knew all the theology he needed to know, and he finds out you have to be born again, born of the Spirit. And then he goes to Samaria, where he meets a woman and tells her that she can have living water, and she believes, and her town believes in this Messiah. And now he comes back to Cana, and he's going to perform a miracle this morning. And my hope would be that we would see this miracle, but more than that, we would see the faith and the belief behind the miracle. So let's look now, starting in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at, this, he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you 
that you've sent Jesus who has given us all the signs pointing to the true sign of the cross and the resurrection. And I pray this morning your spirit would open our eyes to hear the beauty of the gospel. I pray if there are those in this room who have never met you, that they would meet you and believe today. Lord, and for those who have believed maybe for a long time, can you strengthen our faith to press more and more into the reality of being your son or your daughter for your glory. Amen. The gospel is the answer to every problem that this earth has. That was a, a, a statement made in 1998. I was in Japan. I was at a church planting conference in Nagano Prefecture where Yoko Ono has a home or had a home. It was beautiful surroundings. All these uh, missionaries from Japan had gathered together to hear about church planting from a man named Steve Childers. He is still, I believe, on staff with Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. He focuses on church planting. And he came and he was talking to all these people who were tired and worn out and having no fruit in their ministry in Japan. And he shares with them the beauty of the gospel. And he makes this statement. The gospel is the answer to every problem that you're going to face on earth. And I felt probably what a lot of you are feeling. Like, every problem? Like, I like the gospel. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he came and he died for my sins and I believe I'm going to heaven, but every problem? And so Emily and I would kind of process that, but what about this? Like, what what about this problem? You know, you find something new and you get a bill. What about this one, you know? Um, There's problems that maybe we think the gospel can't heal. But this story, this narrative, this reality this morning is here to tell you that the gospel is the answer to every problem. So if you'll follow that logic with me, I'll try to prove that to you. And my hope will be that by the end of this discussion, we would all grow a little bit more, if not a lot more, in faith that God, through Christ, is the answer to every problem that will come our way. So we're going to walk through this story by looking at this official. We're going to look at what he does. I don't know if you remember, if you were here For the woman of Samaria, we kind of watched her interact with Jesus. We're going to watch this man begin by asking for healing. So his faith is beginning. That's going to be point one. Point two, we're going to see it deepen. And then point three, we're going to see him actually fully believe on Christ. So point number one, asking for healing. I want to just set the stage for you of what's going on. You probably already remember the story, but um, Jesus has come from Samaria to Galilee. So remember, uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, you had uh, Jerusalem is in the southern region in Judea, right next to the Dead Sea. So if you're looking at a map just to the left, the Jordan River comes north out of the Dead Sea to Galilee. Between the northern kingdom and the southern area, you have Samaria, where many Jews would not even travel through. Jesus left Jerusalem, where he'd been baptizing, went up into Samaria. That's where he met The woman at the well led her to believe, and in that entire community, many people came to know him. And he stayed there for two days. And then in our passage, he's come back up into Cana, where he had turned the water to wine. And that's where he's going to begin ministering again. And there's an official, which is most likely a Jewish official, in Capernaum. Capernaum is right on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Cana is about 20 miles toward the Mediterranean, and a 700 foot climb. And so this man 
is with his son who's at the point of death. And he decides, I'm going to go and find this person. We aren't told how he knew about Jesus, how he knew he was in Galilee, had he met him on a prior mission trip to you know, Capernaum. All we know is he had heard and believed on some level that this could work. And so he goes off to find Jesus. And I, I think when I read the passage, um, I want our hearts to be warmed by this father's love for the son. Like, we think, well, we would all do that, right? But would we? I think often we might say, why don't we try one more day, one more remedy, one more thing that makes sense to our minds before we try this crazy thing? Or some of us might just say, you know, it is what it is. If he's going to die, he's going to die. But this father decides, no, I'm going to go to great lengths to go and find Jesus. I'm going to beg him to come back to this home and, and do something with my son that maybe the God in heaven would, would rescue my son. There is faith in that. And I want us to just think about that faith before we move on. Obviously, it's limited. He doesn't quite know who Jesus is. There's a lot of ways we can critique it. But I want to hone in on the positives for that moment uh, and read a quote from Luther about this passage. He says this. And what he's talking about is the quality of faith that progresses in our passage. Luther says, therefore, we must so live on the earth, not that we think of something different than simple faith in Christ. So that's the goal, simple faith. And that is better to acquire than what, already, what we already possess. So faith is everything, is what Luther is saying. But that we strive to lay hold of that treasure more and more firmly and securely from day to day. So do you hear what he's saying? On one hand, we have the faith in Christ. But what Luther is saying as he looks at this passage and preaches on it in 1522 is, but we're being pressed to deepen our faith. Now, faith is not the object. The object is Christ. The question is, what role does, does your behavior play in that? Like, are you apprehending of Christ? Are you clinging to him? When do you respond like this father? Like, what does it take in your life to go, I need to pray? I need to cry out to God. And often in our marriage, I have to be, Emily's the first one, let's pray about that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm the pastor. I should have said that before you did. Um, that's why she's going to have that song at her funeral. I was going to have something by Aerosmith or <laughs> James Taylor. But yet, the truth is, even in our prayers, are we willing to ask boldly and, and hope and even risk? I think so often there's a fear of praying the bold prayer of faith because, like this man, I would assume he was imagining getting to Jesus. What if he was turned down? Or what if Jesus simply couldn't accomplish what he wanted? So point one is simple. We're moving to point two now, but just thinking about what in your life drives you to hope and faith that maybe Jesus would heal and rescue and change your situation. But point two, I think, is where things get a little bit more exciting, at least for me in this passage, a deepening of faith. I just love, when you read a, a narrative like this, take your, taking your time, meditate on it, think about what would that look like. Um, he's come for a, probably a, a one to two day journey. It would probably be more likely two parts of two different days to finally get to Jesus. Right? He finally gets to say, Sir, in verse 49, come down before my child dies. He's rehearsed that. He's playing that phrase. 
He's finally got an audience. Here's Jesus. And what does he want Jesus to do? He, what would you, he's thinking, we're going we're gonna to turn around, and if he'll come with me, maybe he'll hurry. Like Maybe we can walk quickly. It's downhill. You know, we'll get to my home, and he'll come in. I don't, it'll be interesting to see what kinds of medicines or prayers, or what's he going to do? I can't wait, but I'm going to go ask Jesus to do what I want. And then Jesus is, um, is Jesus. Like, I love to read his miracles because they're all different. Next week, we're going to see him uh, heal a man that had been an invalid for 38 years. He just simply says, get your bed and get up and walk. Remember the story where he heals a blind man by spitting on, like, dirt and making, like, pasty mud and, right, right, you know, he does different things based on where the person is and what they need to hear. And this man is just told, go, your son will live. What would you do with that? Would you be like, awesome. I think if you're honest, you would think to yourself, what? Like, how did that happen? Are you telling me you just, what? What I love about this passage is the man's response. He believed the word of Jesus. So I want to take just a few moments to talk about miracles. Just a few moments. We read this passage, and we see that there's a miracle. This man's son, you'll see, is healed. And that's exciting. And many of us in this room have problems or ailments. There are a few situations in this church that we just are constantly praying God to, to heal, to intervene, right? And then you come to this kind of a passage, and, and you go, well, maybe I'm not believing enough. Maybe if I had more faith like this man. But I want to draw your attention to the, the word um, he believed, in verse 50, the word that Jesus spoke. See, the key is not that the man had all this faith, and then it happened. The key is Jesus said, your son is healed. And we need to make sure we understand that when miracles happen in the Bible, that doesn't mean that they're always going to happen in our midst, although I do believe miracles do and can happen. But they happen not every time you pray. And we don't always understand struggle and difficulty. And so when we come to miracles, I think it's important we remind ourselves a couple of things. Number one, this child died eventually, didn't he? Remember, Lazarus, Lazarus raised from the dead, eventually died again. Like, miracles are not final in, their, in that context, but they're pointing as a sign to what will happen one day, someday, in glory. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in Christianity is we're just so convinced there's this fluffy cotton ball heaven out there somewhere that that doesn't really matter anymore. We want, we want everything fixed now. And I think that's a good desire. But the promise is that you will have eternity with your Father. That's the promise. The point of faith is that you will spend the rest of eternity with God the Father, delighting in him. And so when we come to situations where we're longing to see miracles, I think we need to remind ourselves that Jesus can answer that prayer, but he doesn't always answer those prayers. The bigger question this passage is posing, though, is what do you need for your faith? And that's what we're going to look at in just a minute. But I want to tell you a story that I think, for me, illustrates this a little bit, this idea of longing for healing and it coming in maybe the way you didn't expect. Um, when Emily and I were in seminary, and I guess I should say Grayson and Coleman were in St. Louis with us as well, Meredith was born. 
No, we moved to Colorado. Meredith was born in January in Colorado, but our friends from seminary had a child just about eight weeks before, and her name was Amelia. And so here we are in Colorado with our little daughter, there in St. Louis with their little daughter, about, is it eight weeks apart? It's four months. Did I just mess that up? That's 12 weeks. I'm okay. And I don't remember ever meeting Amelia, but we knew, or I remember meeting her early, but we knew, um, you know, they're the same age, and we kind of knew they are going to, you know, it's just exciting. Well, then she gets leukemia. So now our dear friends have a daughter who has leukemia, and she goes through treatment, and the leukemia goes into remission. She becomes better, but the treatment left her prone for infection, and she got an infection that got into her brain and left her disabled for her life. In an in a, in a electric wheelchair, um, a, a special van, I mean, life changed dramatically for this family. Um, then they moved to Nebraska, where they are from, and he becomes the RUF campus minister. So we kind of walk with them through this whole situation, but we never really got to know Amelia. We saw photos and read blog posts, uh, but when Amelia was 10, she passed away. And it was very hard. Their grief is still going very difficult and very deep. But Steve Allen, when he wrote about Amelia's passing on his blog, he wrote, and I won't have it perfectly, but it's something like, right now, Amelia is with Jesus, and she's running, and her ponytails are flopping. And when I read that, I just thought, the imagery and the faith and the belief that that is where she is means everything. And so I just want us, as we think about miracles and think about this passage, to understand this passage is not primarily about, is God going to answer all the prayer requests the way we want in this life, though that would be wonderful. The bigger question is, are we reorienting to what he wants, which is eternity with him? And so I want to drive us now to the third point, and really what I think is the whole point of this parable, and that is our faith in Christ that leads us to be brought with him into heaven. Um, if I were to stop right now, and maybe you haven't even said that, and we did a quiz, what is the passage about? Most of you would say, rightly, it's about, and if you look in your Bible, it will usually give you the heading, Jesus heals an official's son. Jesus heals a child. That's the story, right? And I want to say that's not the story. In verse 48, Jesus says the most strange and mysterious thing in the passage. The man has come to Jesus. He asks for Jesus to help. We, he, that's not in quotes yet, but he must have said something. So Jesus says this, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, most of the time you think, unless you believe, you won't see healing, right? Mark 9 I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus does say that often. But in this passage, he speaks to a plural you. We don't know if it's just the official and people like him in Capernaum. Is it the official and the crowd? Is it you, Galileans? Is it you, humans? But here's what we know. Jesus is simply saying, you need to believe. And to help that, I'm going to give you a sign. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference? We would say that the passage is about the son being healed. That's not the point of the passage at all. So the, let's continue the story. The man walks away, which I think is 
probably where, like, if you were a good writer or a movie maker, you would have to just, how does he turn from Jesus and go? And what does his walk look like? Does he start to jog? Does he run? But he comes to the servants who are coming toward him from Capernaum. So he's leaving Cana. They cross paths, and they say to him, your son is recovering. Now, what do you do when you hear that information? Like, you run to your son, right? Isn't that what you do? Like, you just got what you wanted. What does this man do? When did that happen? I'm going to do some math real quick. What is he doing? He stops, and he asks them, what time of day was it? Can you imagine those two people, like the servants? Like, uh, well, we just had lunch, you know? And so, one o'clock. And Jesus says, mm, I mean, the man says, that's when Jesus had said, your son will live. And that man believed. That man believed. I think for us, the reason that doesn't stick out is somewhere the word belief got hijacked. Um, somewhere in our culture of plurality and disruption and just constant influx of of thoughts and ideas, we think of the word belief as simply being what I would mark on a piece of paper if asked. What religion are you? Christian. So what does that make Jesus? The son of God. I mean, we kind of have the Sunday school thing going. But in the Bible, the understanding of belief is much more robust. It's what drives you. What steers you? How do you view this planet? How do you view your daily life? Like what matters to you? What makes you sad? What makes you happy? What brings you rejoicing? What are you longing for? Where are you going? Who are you? And so for this man, at this moment, though his son, he's told, will live, for his heart, he believed. And I want to remind you of some things from the book of John to maybe embolden this point. Uh, First of all, as I've already said in chapter 1, verse 12, um, John tells us that promise that is so beautiful that Jesus, it says that, but to all who receive him and who believe his name, he gives the right to become children of God. So belief for John, when he says that, you need to remind yourself what he's saying is you are a son or daughter of, the heavenly, of your heavenly father. Like you are adopted. And he continues. Remember, nobody just would read these verses and that would be it. They would read the whole letter, the whole gospel. And later in John, we're told in John 15, you are in union with Jesus, the vine and the branches. So the gospel is so profound that, that you don't just accept sort of acquiescing that Jesus is somehow God, but you actually are now made in a mystical union with him, where you can't tell where you end and he begins. That's union with Christ. That doctrine is critical and it's beautiful. But then in John 14, we've also heard that his Holy Spirit comes, right? And Jesus tells his disciples and he tells you and I, I will not leave you as orphans. And he's going to send you a helper. You have the Trinitarian relationship with the Father the Son, and the Spirit, all in this beautiful letter. And what's going on here is they believed. And my question to you is, do you believe? Like, do you not just acquiesce, 
for some of you, that's the first step, and I hope that you'll make that step this morning. If you are here this morning and you've not made that decision, accepted that Christ is real and your Lord and Savior, I would beg you to consider that this morning. But for those of you who would say, I've been a Christian, you know, for as long as I can remember, beautiful, Jesus wants you to believe even more. Press in even more. What's holding you back from, from begging him to take over every part of your life? And I think the answer is, largely, I'm gonna just quote John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, that Jesus is a dying hero. Like, he's the sign. The sign, like, he turns water to wine, he heals the sun, but he's the sign. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says um, famously, for the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then in verse 22, something very similar to what Jesus says here. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we, that is the apostles, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, i.e., everyone in the known world, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the call, I believe, of this um, miracle is to shake you and I to the core and say, do you see Jesus and need him as your savior? Do you believe? Have you seen yourself dead and resurrected with Christ? Now, it's interesting because he says that they need signs, right? The Jews need signs, and Jesus says that. You all want signs. What I love about this passage is the father believed without a sign, didn't he? He was told, go, there's no sign, it's by faith. And then when he goes into his household, he has to explain to them what you all thought was this natural getting better of our son was Jesus, and they had to believe So do we rest in that? Do we believe in that miracle? What would it look like for you to start to believe these promises in the Bible? What would it look for you to start believing that that you are actually a daughter, a son of the living God based 100% on the righteousness of Jesus? That there's nothing you could do to turn that love away from you. That there's nothing you could do to further earn his delight and his favor that you are already in. Certainly, he can be proud. Just like a parent, I'm more proud when my kids do good things, but there's nothing they can do to leave my family. You see what I'm saying? You are in, but we operate like we're orphans. We operate often like we are not connected to him. And so what I think this passage would call us to do with Luther's comments is further press into the areas we're not believing. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago the Christmas movie uh, Die Hard. I, I really was teasing. I don't really watch it at Christmas. But the Christmas movie I do watch, every year we watch, no matter what, is It's a Wonderful Life. So college students, that's your new task. I think last time you all watched Die Hard because I said something. So now you all have to go watch It's a Wonderful Life. Who watches It's a Wonderful Life? Who watches it every year? Okay. I'm going to spoil the end of that movie for you right now, but you've had 73 years. 
That's too long. If you haven't seen it yet, that's on you. So George Bailey has wanted to leave Bedford Falls his whole life, and he keeps having to stay, and he keeps thinking he's got the raw end of the deal. I'm kind of jumping ahead. But then all of a sudden, a really bad tragedy happens. He loses, well, not even a tragedy, but loses a ton of money, and he's at his end, and he thinks, I'm going to kill myself. And then an angel comes to his rescue, Clarence. And Clarence shows him what Bedford Falls would have looked like had he never existed. So then he wakes up from that trance or whatever it is, and he just starts running down like Main Street back to his home. Do you remember that scene where he's just running and he's just yelling as only Jimmy Stewart can do? I won't even try to imitate it. And what I love about that scene is nothing has changed with his circumstances. He still owes however much that was, 8000 I don't remember, that Uncle Bailey lost, a lot of money. He gets to his home, and all the people in town start coming in with money, right? But what I love about that scene is he's not like looking at the money. He's not counting it. He's not nervous. Are we going to meet the deadline? What's going to happen? The bank examiner and the cops come in. He doesn't show any fear. He just stands there, loving life. He can't wait to tell his wife what just happened, how delighted he is in the existence he has with her. Like, what a great scene. Yours is better. Yours is better. This story is designed for you to come in and soak up the promises. By faith, you are in here. God delights in you. When you read the promises, I remember hearing Jack Miller, he went off and studied the promises, and I remember going, is there like a letter, like a book somewhere I don't know of in the Bible called The Promises? Like maybe, I promise. No, what he's saying is, when by faith you come to Scripture as one whom God delights in, promises emerge. Things that looked even burdensome become beautiful, right? And you begin to know, this is my story. And maybe one of you will run down Main Street in Stillwater and yell like George Bailey because that is the gospel for you today. Is that where your faith is? Is that where your hope is? If you don't believe in Jesus, if you do not think he's the son of God, you do not think you know him personally, I would welcome a meeting, a time with you. I would ask you to pray. And I ask you to realize you're believing in something. You're being moved and stirred by some faith in something else. Maybe this morning would be your chance and your time to ask Jesus to show himself to you freshly and for the first time. And if you are here and you've just been stagnant in your faith or you've been growing in your faith, I would invite you this morning to ask the Lord to show you areas where maybe you haven't asked him to come in. Parts of your life, relationships, finances, health, whatever it is, open your life up to God 100%. Let's pray. Jesus, I think we all can quote Mark 9 and agree with the words, we believe, help our unbelief. We know that in one sense, Lord, if we are a Christian, we know that we have been saved by you, we've been purchased by you, that your cross rescued us. We know that we not only died with you, but we rose with you. And we know that our life on earth is one where we live by faith, longing for glory, 
that is promised to us. But Lord, if we're honest, we also would say we get overwhelmed by the cares of the world, the burdens, the health concerns, the, the sin of our heart, uh, the, the news on laws being passed, uh, just Lord, social media brings it to our doorstep, the realities of brokenness. I pray this morning that we would remember that you are on your throne and you have a plan and you have welcomed us into your plan as your ambassadors. Let us be nourished by this meal we are about to take together. Let us be nourished by your spirit Let us be nourished by the gospel that we would go from here into our daily lives on fire for you, preaching the good news to those around us for your glory. Amen.